собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И привидели их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I'm excited to welcome Erica Monahan to the podcast to talk about the history of Siberian traders in early modern Russia. I learned a lot from Erica's book, The Merchants of Siberia, Trade in Early Modern Russia, particularly how interconnected Russia was to global trade networks that spanned the Eurasian continent, how these traders formed the growing middling class in Russian society, and how trade went hand-in-hand with state and empire building. Erica Monahan is an associate professor in history at the University of New Mexico. She specializes in commerce, corruption, and empire in early modern Eurasia. She's the author of The Merchants of Siberia, Trade in Early Modern Russia, published by Cornell University Press. Here's Erica Monahan. Your book challenges several assumptions about the place of early modern Russia in global trade networks and the role of merchants and commerce in Russian state and empire building. Why don't we start our conversation by having you give a general overview of some of the assumptions that we have or historians have about trade and global trade networks in early modern Russia and how you're asking us to think about those things differently. It seems to me that the that there are all these assumptions that prevail about Russia and Russia was completely isolated until Peter the Great came along and turned it towards the West. This, of course, no Russian scholars think this anymore. It's one of those things that continues to kind of persist in a more general understanding, I think. And so my book fits into that kind of body of saying that Russia has lots and lots of connections with the West, with other parts of the world, before Peter comes along and and starts really turning things around in about 1700. Also, Marshall Poe was very instrumental in showing there was this perceived notion that Russia is this tyrannical, autocratic, particularly oppressive state, uh, not in the mold of other states. And that, and this perception has very much persisted in time as the West started to understand itself as more and more civilized, Russia became more and more uncivilized. Even Marshall Poe's work, A People Born to Slavery, he he kind of traces this narrative of when Russia starts getting described as not just powerful, but bad and powerful. And it's not in the 15th century, it comes later in this in the 17th century or so. It seems to me that this idea of Russia as kind of separate and worse from the West is maybe something that we've projected farther back in time than is actually merited. For example, by the 1590s, there's lots and lots of Englishmen in Russia trying to trade. One of them is Giles Fletcher. He writes an account of, of Russia one of these really critical hostile accounts saying the czar is so autocratic and he's awful. And Russia does, of course, doesn't like this press. But the thing we don't often hear is that Queen Elizabeth tried to get the text banned on English streets as well, because she didn't like the idea of that these sorts of notions of being so critical of the head of state even circulating in her own country. And I think that's a great example of the ways in which Russia gets critiqued, and maybe the kind of contemporary apples to apples, what's happening in other parts of the West gets a bit lost because we we project back a kind of civilized West that respects human rights, etc. 
farther in time than is maybe merited. So, um, so kind of if we're, so Russia wasn't so isolated. Russian wasn't so maybe wasn't contemporaneously more tyrannical than other states in the West. And then also there to point out economic isolation individually. And here my work leans tremendously on Yarmo Catalan. I'm not sure if it's Catalan or Catalani, but he is a scholar who's written about Russia's foreign expansion and he documents just how much Russia is trading with the West. And he argues that Russia is fully integrated in what we'd call a European economy by the end of the 17th century already. So it's not a result of Peter's turning towards the West. It's already happened. The English Navy's greatness very much rises on the Russian economy. They're getting pitch, tar, the things you paint the bottom of boats from, the hemp that is making ropes and sails. Many of these things are coming from Russia. He also points out that animal hides. Russia seems to get good at making these animal hides called yufti. And it's one of those products, maybe like medicinal rhubarb, that in modernity we lose sight of because these products mean nothing to us for the most part now, but they were a big deal and, and part of political economy back then. So Russia had many exports in, in this regard, and Russia was Russia's economy was already more integrated. And then the fourth thing that I would just say that I think I kind of in general terms that I came away from doing this work and writing this book is that we really don't know as much about the early modern economy as we thought we did. When I started doing this work, I thought I will do my work on merchants and then contextualize it into this huge body of economic history that will help me situate what I'm doing in a larger picture. And as I looked for that larger picture, I was disappointed. I, you, you read books that, you know, the history of, for example, um, and, and not to pick at these important and great pieces of work, but Kaufengoss's History of the 18th Century Economy, you start looking at the footnotes, it's based on five customs books. And, it, and it's talking and it's claiming a history of the 18th century economy. The best, Raymond Fisher's Russian fur trade, which I have drawn so heavily on, and the work of Pavlov. I mean, these own authors will be the first to tell you this isn't quite a definitive history of the Russian fur trade because they're actually drawing on a small fraction of the data which one would really assemble if you were going to make a full picture, right? So what... so. And it seems to me, and I became increasingly convinced as doing this work, that in, in the absence of robust information, we have inserted these ideologically infused negative views of what Russia was, and we've taken the word of hostile observers at their word. And here, Russia, in the early modern world, to be fair, is the print record is so different. Russia didn't write about itself as much. It didn't save as much. The The historical records aren't there. And so we have relied on foreigners very much to tell us about Russia. And I think that that's come at a cost when in, in these qualitative terms. Actually, can you speak a little bit more about the sources? Because the, I hope the listeners will bear with me because this is a particular interest of mine. But you do point out that unlike, say, looking at merchants in the West where you have family archives, we don't have this for Russia. And that most of your 
if not almost all of your source base is is through merchants' contacts with the state. So you're using a lot of you know, a lot of your primary sources are state documents. But nevertheless, it, you've done an impressive job of constructing a social history of of trade and merchants' lives through the limited sources that you have. So give give us a picture of what sources of the period that you used are like. Sure. Thank you. Um, and if I could, maybe I'd, I'd make a comment about the method and how it changed when I went from dissertation to trying to write a book. So my sources were customs books. And if I could make a little aside, before I became a graduate student, I worked in Russia in the late 90s for a transport company. And one of the, and probably one of the central reasons I got out of doing Russian business was because of the challenges that working with Russian customs presented. Um, (laughs) And trying to figure out how to navigate this organization to get things across borders was, um, well, it aged me in dog years for sure. And and so when I when I came to graduate school and I was interest I was sort of interested in doing a business history and I said let me do merchant history and I started realizing that it's customs books that are the sources and you might be thinking so nowadays customs happen we we encounter customs when we cross international borders but in Russia and many other early modern places every town had a customs post this was the case in Siberia at maximum there were thirty one I think. And to my mind, what this really speaks about is just how, in many ways, local early modern identities were that um, that we sometimes don't appreciate. People you encounter all, all throughout my sources, the words, you know, here people and their people. And their people can be other Russians from three towns over as well. So I read these customs books, which is a custom supposed to set up people coming through carrying goods. They actually don't pay taxes every Time they come to a customs post, but they have to make their declarations and they have their inventory and it is supposed to line up and there are little fees charged for storage or or for having someone portage or weighing and etc. Even though the kind of um, one-tenth tax that goes to the state is supposedly charged just once on goods. So these documents become the sources that I mostly use, my number one source. And I went, I spent two years working in the archives. And for the most part, I identified three towns, um, Verkhotor, Tumin, Tobolsk, and I used a more southern town of Tara where I could, the customs books. And this gives you a sense of who's coming, with whom, what, when, and and this is my main my main source that I read. Then I also read simultaneously the state correspondence between Moscow and this town. Whenever whenever merchants come up or something comes up to try and you know there's a problem, Buharan merchants complain that someone else's cattle is trampling their fields or someone isn't allowing access to the common waterhole or that sort of thing. Also lets you see a small glimpse of life. So this was my method for writing my dissertation. And I and I went out there and I counted for the most part. I wanted to count the merchants. And I finished. And when I was done, I had all this information about privileged merchants and Buharans operating in Western Siberia. And it was charitably put dense. <laughs> so then when I went to revise it into a book that people would hopefully read and could convey something of the early modern commercial world, what I did at that point was just pick a few families 
that I had a lot of more traction on. And then I just became omnivorous. And this is just as digital searching through a, a catalogs like Hathi Trust is becoming available. And then if I could get a name um, Philatif or Shababin, I'm just searching any which way I can to kind of round out the pictures. And instead of, and I sort of left all my counted merchants behind and in the book just focus in on a, on a few families to, to develop their story. And we'll talk about those, those, some of those families in more detail in a bit. Now, your book focuses on commercial networks in Siberia. And it's interesting because you are emphasizing Russia's orientation towards the East rather than the West. Why is Siberia significant? Siberia is significant because it's that territory between the East. In the world of early modern trade, it's Eastern goods that are firing the imaginations and consumer desires in Western Europe to a large extent. And lots of stuff is, I don't want to over, I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but there is a good amount of stuff that's coming over land and continues to come over land. But even more than perhaps the actual stuff that's coming through were the aspirations to move over land. And this is beginning in the 16th century. One of the main reasons that foreigners are, that they want to come to Russia and they see Russia as a way to get to the far east. More of, and they're more interested, they're more interested in going down the Volga to the Caspian Sea and then across more southward than going right across Siberia. Actually, for a long time, I, I thought I discounted the significance of Siberia because I'm thinking, ah, everyone's going down the Volga. But the Volga faced enough periodic instability. The state doesn't really command that territory so well that I think Siberia becomes an alternative that people, you know, they'll head out towards Kazan and rather than going all the way down the Caspian because it's so dangerous to go across the steppe. Willard Sutherland's Taming the Wild Steppe is something about this. And that story happens. It gets settled with Russian peasants in the 18th century. Matt Romanello's The Elusive Empire talks about the slow process of even the area around Kazan taking control of. And Yuri Malakoff's dissertation talks about how, you know, the protection rackets for a, a trade caravan, caravan moving across the steppe. So the steppe remains not Russian territory for a long time. And maybe that more wooden taiga, as cumbersome as those portages might have been, is another venue of a way to get across. I let, let me preface that by, you know, I don't want to overstate and say, you know, that massive caravans are moving along the Ket River. That's not the case. But one way to illustrate is Russia settles the town of Tara in 1594, its southernmost town on in Siberia for a long time. It doesn't move south of Tara until the 1718 and then the 1720s when the Urdish line starts going. That is a century and a quarter of kind of stasis in terms of southward expansion while Russia is busting fast directly eastward across to Siberia. It reaches the Pacific Ocean, Ocean with its first temporary fort in 1640s, 49, I think. So the, the kind of geopolitics of steppe nomads, many of whom survive by raiding for slaves that they'll send to slave markets going down to galleys on the Mediterranean and for the Ottomans, is, is a big component of 
the way in which Russian expansion develops. That said, with that geopolitical overlay, the Russian state is interested in accessing contact with the East. Many of these networks have existed for a long time. The cover of my book is a diplomatic trade mission from Bukhara to Ivan IV in the 16th century to illustrate that very thing. This, These sorts of connections have been going on for a long time. And I think um, when people often maybe denigrate Russian merchants because you know they didn't go as far. Russians only start going directly to China in the 1670s to trade directly. And I think one of the reasons for that is because there were already these networks in place of Central Asian traders that existed. And so Mughal goods from fabrics from India, Chinese goods, these are being shuttled across Eurasia in what the late Sherry uh, Woodworth described as this kind of great swirling, swirling by many Central Asian uh, and some Ottoman and Armenian merchants that are essentially providing this infrastructure. So Russia didn't need to go so far itself. You know, one of the things I, I in, in talking about this, the, the sheer length of these trading networks, I mean, I was really not knowing much about this period, but also, of course, trade and commerce. I was amazed how these trading networks stretched all the way from, say, Italy or even England. And, you know, the Italians were buying caviar, but also all the way into China and to India. Who were these merchants who inhabited these networks? And what was trade like at the time? To be perfectly honest, I would like to even have a better understanding than I do, right? As I see it, in the period I'm talking about, the 17th and 18th, early 18th century, we don't have a lot of merchants going from Beijing to Italy. You know, Marco Polo was such an exception. Instead, you have you have a lot of handoffs of goods. You don't have this kind of super long haul Beijing to Gibraltar tra- trade, but rather people handing things off and and sometimes people things going in both directions. I've been really surprised sometimes. There's been occasions where I have seen, for example, silk move from. Kazan eastward to Tobolsk. And I think, why would that happen, right? Silk goes from east to west. Um, but so there is more of a maybe swirling than we've appreciated. But who, who are these merchants? Many of these merchants that are involved in long haul trade are gone for years. And you also have, in, in my example with Bukharans, Bukharans are merchants from Central Asia. There's some debate about if they actually came from the city of Bukhara in the Bukharan Hanit, or maybe they also came from Urgench or Hiva or other Central Asian cities, but just get labeled as Bukharans because Bukhara had the highest stature. So even as that's a, uh, that is a bit of a debate, the Bukharans that I study are emigres from Central Asia. They are Russians, and they moved and they settle in Siberia very much at the encouragement an invitation of the Russian state. And then they both continue to trade themselves and family members go, um, for example, um, for will go for years to China, I on multiple trips to China, back to Central Asia. And they also host other, at some points, other caravans coming from Central Asia. Work like Stephen Dale and Scott Levy also gives us, helps give us pictures of these diaspora communities of merchants that are 
instrumental in facilitating the movement of long-haul goods across Eurasia. And there are people that have one foot in, in both places. I mean, there are communities in Ostrahan. There are Indian communities in Ostrahan, and there are Indian communities in Bukhara that are kind of these nodes on these networks for long-distance caravan trade. Yeah, yeah, because it, it just it just really struck me. I mean, it, it's, I guess it goes to this notion or the assumption of this isolation of of Muscovy as as almost like an island within a, a world around it, and and just the vast array of peoples and cultures and religions and places that a Russian merchant merchant may encounter was just quite striking. Could you get a sense of the the social relationships? That what society was like, how did they interact with people they encountered, interact with different ethnic or religious groups? Probably religious is, is, is most likely than, than ethnicity um, in terms of recognizing difference. How did this mixture of peoples interact with one another? This is a great topic. And it's one that Russianists have been very interested in, in kind of if we – I'm probably already sounding dated to say – post-Soviet or something, but in the post-Soviet, you know, decades, it, there was this huge awareness that, oh, there are lots of Muslims in the Russian Empire and that the Volga converted to, you know, people, the Bulgars along the Volga, which is now considered heartland Russian territory. It isn't quite that in the period I'm studying, but they converted to Islam around the same time that Vladimir embraced Orthodoxy over in Kiev and on Crimea. So, so there's this tremendous amount of diversity, and there's lots of Muslims in, in the Russian Empire. In terms of the social setting, one of the things that I found so intriguing and something that I haven't, I won't even pretend to have fully explained, are, are Tatar populations in Siberia. You know, what does this word Tatar mean? It's tremendously problematic because in the 19th and 20th century, it, it's it been mobilized in, in kind of identity-claiming ways that I... I'm not sure apply in the period I'm working on, but from the documents that I study, there are 19 different types of Tatars, from Tatars that are maybe a, a, on the social level of a serf to Tatars that are high nobility, that claim that claim in their family genealogies that they covet and keep and hold and pass on through generations that claim a lineage to both Genghis Khan and Muhammad Ali. And there's this whole world of, of Tatar history and hierarchies that starts to, some of which incorporate themselves in with the Russian state and are quite cooperative and others like Kachum, for example, who was the leader of the Siberian Hanit before the Cossack Yermak came and ousted him in the 1580s, this Tatar leader continues to, though not from his capital, wage a war claiming to still be that Han for over 15 years. And so certainly in terms of the people there and Siberian history, one thing I learned is Siberia wasn't a blank slate. There were people there that had that had a history and had and, and thought of themselves in terms of having these claims to more prestigious identities. The Buharans that come from Central Asia, they have closer relationships with Tatars that already lived in Siberia than with Russians. They uh, sometimes, um, many Tatars end up dependents in the homes of Buharans. One of the things that I think I've seen through my documents is that the um, more Tatars are writing. Are these Buharans 
teaching them. The Bukharans established schools in Siberia before Russians did. I think it was Cherkasky that established the first school in Siberia in 1701. Before that, it was, you know, individual voyevodas that they would have a tutor. They would hire a tutor to teach their children if, if they wanted that. But Bukharans already had schools. And what are they doing? Why are they teaching people to read? To read the Quran. And one of the things that I advanced that I think was more controversial when I started doing my work, but now uh, many people are saying, of course they were, is that there is a level of, can we call it proselytization, going on in Siberia among Muslims. In the 18th century, you have the Russian Senate back in St. Petersburg discussing this and quite concerned with it. Do I see Bukharans becoming friends with Russians, for example? This is something that I that I wanted to I wanted to explore, and I find in I, I I can't answer that question. I don't know if they went to each other's house for to be friends, but the um, Bukharans and Russians had different banyas, so they didn't go to the same banya, and there were traveling banyas so people could have the bath traders com- coming through. They they didn't cooperate tons, although they did cooperate some. I found a, a mill jointly owned by a Russian and a Bukharan in on some, you know, a handful of occasions. I did find a, some occasions where a Bukharan would carry goods on behalf of a Russian or vice versa. Where I see more interaction are in little microcredit exchanges. One way in which Russia is very different from the West, as far as I understand it, is in its absence of banks and financial institutions don't get developed until much later. So what you have instead is a whole world of microcredit. Everyone is lending anyone money. And you see lots of transactions between, I've seen a fair amount of transactions between Bukharans and Russians in this capacity. Also, and finally, um, I would say, it seems to me that their houses are not so far apart as many Russian Orthodox churches, church officials would have would have preferred. Why do I say this? Because you have certain moments when a high church official will come through Tobolsk or um, and once to men and say, "This is atrocious. You have Muslims and Christians living side by side. That's unacceptable." And then you know, three decades later, come through again and say the same thing. So it seems to me that there's a, a degree of proximity and coexistence that people on the ground lived that wasn't acceptable to that wasn't acceptable to higher church officials and i think that one one great example that i think does so much to illustrate just how how empire far away from the center functions is around the turn of the century i think this is from 1701 ish you have some officials, uh, some church officials complaining, the mosque is way too close to the church, their calls to prayer, their shouts really disturb our services, we can't have this. And the center writes a document saying, do not antagonize this population. Fires might be a wonderful opportunity to move, to rebuild a mosque farther away from the church, but don't do anything to antagonize them. And I think that's just a great illustration of, yes, in theory, Russia is orthodox. Um, The state certainly takes some responsibility for policing the behavior of the orthodox flock, but it is not that interested in policing the non-orthodox. And and I have more examples in the book of where they really kind of turn the other cheek 
because they recognize that there's this Muslim population and they want this Muslim population there because they know that they, this, um, the Bukharans are the long distance traders that, that kind of are going places and facilitating the movement of goods that the state on its own can't manage. It has its hands full trying to have an army there and, and building its forts and dealing with defense, certainly along the south. It, so it wants merchants there. And from the very first charter to the Stroganov family in 1558, throughout instructions to Siberian governors throughout the 17th century, you see them saying, be good to these merchants. Initially, the state doesn't charge them any taxes at all. This is very much the kind of modus operandi of the Russian state and other parts of the Russian empire as well. You know, at first, it's all come, free trade, no taxes. And then once their pathways are established and they're there, then they start trying to generate revenue and and charging taxes of and then more taxes, but initially they just want those traders there, and they're fine that with they don't have they have no problem that they're that they're Muslim because they perform this commercial function. And maybe even one more example that I would share that I thought was kind of striking. I found one example of an immigrant coming from the I believe this was the Ottoman Empire into Kazan, and he wanted to change his social station and be a peasant and farm land. The state didn't want him to do that. They wanted him to stay as a trader. They insisted that at least once every five years, he would leave. And I interpret that as, as being because the Russian state didn't need another peasant necessarily. The Russian state wanted people that had these connections to other commercial centers that would be conduits of goods. Yeah, this is this is one of I think one of the big revisions that you're making is the the Russian state's relationship to economy and to trade and to commerce because you refer to it repeatedly as an activist commercial state rather than a state that just extracts wealth from say off the peasants' backs. You're you you are showing how much effort the Russian state is putting into developing and facilitating these trading networks, just as you said. Now, alongside of that. Your story is also about the the building of the Russian Empire. So how does the state, commerce, and empire work with each other? State building and empire building are happening, happening simultaneously in Siberia and maybe simultaneously everywhere. For example, this um, post of Vayavoda, which we never quite translate because it's sort of military governor. They, they straddle both positions. Vayavoda also existed in central Russia for quite a long time, as even southern Russian towns might face steppe raids. And there was a real military imperative that had had to be attended to. So we see that in Siberia as well. All along, Russia is, as I see it, it is interested in cultivating commercial activity because it sees commerce as a way to cover the gaps of providing needed goods to places that it can't get, that it can't quite meet all the supply needs. And this is where I, so, and this is where I start to call Russia an activist commercial state. It is, so it's something we see in decree after decree. It also is, you know, when it sends people to both small Kalnik leaders on the steppe or to the Khan of Bukhara or to China starting from the 1650s, it is 
always expressing its desire for merchants to come and for them to have friendly trade relations between these countries. As far as we know, and again, we don't have as full a picture of the early modern economy as we'd like, but historians are saying that over half of Russia's state revenue may be coming from customs revenue as opposed to property taxes. This is more than England at the same time. So this tells you that this is a state that is deriving revenue from commerce. It recognizes that commerce is important. That is a change from the previous picture in which we relied on these hostile accounts by people like Katashikin and Giles Fletcher, who said the Russian czar doesn't understand commerce at all. He just thinks that he can squeeze his lemon dry or that the more he shaves his merchants like sheep, the more they'll produce. And that's not the case. And so so it was the Russian state got blamed for this Russian backwardness, or well, not only the state, they also blamed Russian merchants for being kind of particularly crooked. But given some of the stuff that the English and Dutch pulled, I'm not sure that that's a fair assessment. All right, so those, yeah, so that's one of the ways that I think we should revise this. And just finally, the Russian state, when they go out into Siberia, what do they do? When they settle a town, they build a fort, they build a church, and they build a customs post simultaneously. They are not there just for for tribute because for most of Siberian history it's the military governor that collects the tribute and handles the fur tribute they established this entire customs infrastructure of posts in every town man it paper ink wax candles supplies in you know over 30 locations to keep track of goods going between places. And I think when we see that alone, we have to recognize that this isn't just an extracting tributary state, that they there's a recognition that commerce fulfills a valuable and important purpose for the state. My favorite chapter in the book is the one where you talk about the spaces merchants inhabited, just because you, you do this really wonderful social history and give some life to, to these people that are, it's so difficult, as you've already said, to, to uncover. And, and this, these spaces include these custom posts, but also, and you've already kind of hinted to this, bathhouses and pubs and guest houses. And the subtitle of this chapter I found quite interesting too. You call it seen and unseen. Talk about this notion of seen and unseen in Siberia's spaces of exchange. Seen and unseen, I think, is just really recognizing that there is so much that we don't know. And there is, try as we might, even if all the paperwork was there, I am entirely convinced that we wouldn't have a full picture of trade because there was smuggling and corruption what I really wish I could do is uh, write a history of corruption. I wish I could recognize, you know, I wish we could somehow account for that. One of the ideas that's become more formed as, I, as I've, I've gone along is that corruption is her- historically contingent. And, you know, what constitutes conflict of interest now doesn't necessarily confl- constitute conflict of interest then. Trying to get at this again and again, you see through the in documents that people do get in trouble for corruption. There's various words throughout documents. People do get in in trouble for this stuff, but it often has, it often is accompanied by phrases of, he took more than was okay, or he he took his his stuff first. There was this sort of recognition. You could engage in self-dealing after the czar's business was done. And then, you know, fair game. 
or, or not fair game. So there are limits, but we don't quite see, I don't know entirely what the rules of the game were, but I have this sense there, there are rules of the game. And one um, Russian historian put it, a colleague in Russia that I talked to is, well, really what a customs post determines is just what the customs agent and the trader agreed to write down as opposed to what actually happened. That said, I think it's worth trying to understand this stuff nonetheless. And so, yeah, seen and seen and unseen. There, there's more to the picture than we'll ever be able to see. But by you know documenting what we, what we can and trying to pay attention to these small clues, maybe we can get more of a picture. One thing when I think I'm seen, I just think about these tales of, you know, you'd have people approaching a, um, approaching a Siberian town and then they'd go and they'd hide their stuff in the woods and they'd go into town and declare a small package. You know, they declared like some small shipment and then they'd find someone and go out in the night and dig out this other stuff and, and do the, the real transactions. And, and so you have town callers going out through Siberian towns, announcing again and again, don't do this sort of thing. You have the Russian state establishing out-of-town checkpoints to try and, oh, we know that they go off into this non-marshy woody spot there. We'll set up ourselves here and, and catch them. The reason why I'm so I was so attracted to this this chapter of you know showing what life is like in these these customs posts, because in contrast to early modern history of Western European nations of France and England, they have such a richness of material. I used to in graduate school really envy the early modernists of Europe because they had so much source material to work with to paint a picture of early modern life. But in Russia, we don't. At least we don't have a, a lot of studies that do that. I was really struck by the fact that you were able to, given the source base, you were able to construct some of the life is like. So just to give listeners a sense, what was the bathhouse like? What was the pub like that these merchants lived in? I don't know what the inside of a bathhouse is like, but I know they're there and people haul water from them. And the state is sometimes making rules about when you can have fire and when you can't have fire. And I see people selling at, um, at the at the trading market, those little viniki. If you've ever been to a Russian banya, the, what is it, willow branches front together that you beat, beat each other with and, and kind of swirl up above to get bring the hot air down. You know, so I see Viniki for sale in Siberian customs posts. And the Russian, the Kabak, and Paul Boshkovich is the uh, very distinguished historian at Yale who wrote The Merchants of Siberia, who says, you know, there's so much more that should be studied about the Kabak. The, the Kabak was the Russian pub. And it was a place where you got alcohol, um, alcohol, except for privileged people like privileged merchants, the Gusti, like the Philatives, the the state has a monopoly on alcohol and you buy it at the state pub where they don't in the 17th century sell food. I don't know why, but apparently there is kind of a little bit indoors and outdoors and long wooden benches. And sometimes people will go to the Kabak and drink for hours, women too. And sometimes people will have fights and wives will drive away, you know, will drag away their husbands. The, yeah, parts of Siberian life that I feel came up again and again were kind of domestic, you know, domestic matters. The, the, the priest and the young woman 
doing it on the, the stove in some Siberian house and getting caught when the husband comes home or the, the maiden and the guy who gave her some chulki, these long wooden tights. And so she did it with him in the field. And now she's with child and he's, and he's denying that he ever promised to, to marry her. You see many of these incidences and it's on my list of things to do is I've kind of not to invoke Mitt Romney, Romney, I have a binder full of women (laughs) (laughs) things that have happened to women in Siberia. And I want to, I want to write about them. I wish I could have incorporated more about women, even in this. I mean, one thing I do see long distance Bukharan caravans, their wives are going with them. I don't think I see Russian wives traveling on long distance caravans, but the most elite merchants younger in their career, they'll go on these big trips. But my understanding is as they get older, they, it's their agents that are doing it. They're staying in, they're staying for the most part in Moscow or, you know, Soli Kalams, watching their salt walks, working on their position at court and in kind of high circles in Moscow. And it's their agents that are out in Siberia living for years. Some elites will write messages being like, Agent one, is is he drinking himself to death? Will you check on that guy? Um, <laughs> because I haven't heard from him. Part of their team is out there in, in Siberia for years where some people have said Siberia is a military barracks until the great migration of the 19th century where you really start have people, you know, the Volga settled and now we get lots of people going out to live in Siberia. You know, the numbers are small, but it isn't entirely a military Barracks. There, there are leash laws in Tobolsk, for example. Um, you know, there's, and you see the occasional, you know, perfume and eyeglasses showing up, and people trying to have books there as as well. So it's a fledgling frontier place that isn't wholly ethnically Russian. Now you devote a good portion of of towards the end of the book to look at in detail the the history of two prominent merchant families and and the first is the Filichovs and the other is the Shababin families and and these are prominent merchant families who were these families and how did their experiences as merchants compare to one another these merchants were these two families maybe to come at the comparative part first they are both privileged in a sense and yet my sense is that they are, the Philoptives, once they become wealthy in Moscow, are in, in a high league above in terms of status and, and probably in terms of wealth than the Shababins out in Siberia. Let me try and explain a little bit more what I mean. In the Russian state, from the late 16th century to 1728, when Peter abolishes these categories, there's privileged merchants. The most privileged merchants are called gusti. And these, the numbers of these range from about 20 to at the maximum 50. But for most of the time, it's like there's about 30 of at a time. And you, you become a gusti by getting an individual charter piece of paper from the czar saying you are a gusti and listing what privileges you get as a result. Um, one of which that you can brew your own moonshine, you don't have to quarter troops. There are some tax advantages, but ghosty pay some taxes. Thankfully for me, their agents are paying taxes at the customs post. That's why I get to, that's why I know some of the stuff I know about them. They don't have to pay the same property taxes with the Passad, like um, lower trading people. But the, um, and then there's this lower second tier merchant, the Gastini Sotni, and there's a few hundred of them. And if your dad is one, you're sometimes, you know, if the brother is one, the other brother is as well, and the son. It's less exclusive, but they also have certain privileges. There's this other, probably Western and more associated with fabric 
corporation, we call them, called the Suhoni Gusti, that by the 1680s kind of just gets folded into the Gustini Sotni. So we have these two privileged corporations that I see quite a bit in Siberia. Gusti, very exclusive, and then Gustini Sotni, and then lots of people that have the label trading people below it. But in Siberia, beyond them, everyone's trading. I mean, it's lots and lots of soldiers and Cossacks trading. So first thing I should say is that by studying merchants trading in Siberia and by that legally designated merchants, I'm not getting the full picture of trade. You couldn't do it without taking stock of the soldiers, but they, there was this sort of intention to try and do something of a social history of merchants. So you, you make choices. And that's a choice I made to focus on these legally designated merchants. Now, Bukharan merchants, they never get charters as Gosti or Gostini Sotni, but they are privileged in a sense in Siberia in that the state encourages them to be there and they pay initially no taxes. And then already by the early 17th century, they're paying some taxes. Russians occasionally complain that they're paying less taxes throughout the century. So they don't kind of hold a charter, but they have a somewhat privileged position with the state. The Shabadin family, I identify them and I see them first when the kind of first patriarch of the family, he goes on a trip to China probably to secure rhubarb for the Russian state. And as a reward, the Russian czar in 1657 grants him territory in Tumen, hundreds of hundreds of acres. And this is as far as I see when he settles his family in Siberia. And then I can keep track of these people through six generations. They're mostly merchants based in this Siberian town. They also engage in agriculture and husbandry, um, what early modern economy doesn't, because you just can't go to Walmart for everything, right? But sometimes this creates some tension in that Russians in the town will complain and say, hey, they're selling their agricultural goods at the customs post, and they don't have to pay the same tax that I pay. This tells us a couple of things, demonstrates what, that they do have some privileged measure, that they have a diversified economy. And also the Shabbatins, they're not just engaged in long-haul trade. They trade locally in their town. They trade in towns around Siberia. Their activities aren't just glamorous, great big caravans trade that come once or twice a year off the step. They're also very much engaged in leather making. In the 18th century, the Shababans will own one of the biggest tanning factories in Tumen, and much of the livestock, goats, lots and lots of goats and horses that are coming off of Siberia, they turned their hides into valuable things for tack, as well as these leather yufti, the tanned leather that it gets used for various purposes, including wrapping up stuff that you will put on the back of a horse to ship some, or camel to, to ship on some caravan. The Shababins are kind of out there in Siberia as this leading this leading family. They have many dependents. They lend money. They are the biggest property owners in Tumen. They have a, a big family. You can see that they have privileged position. And in this one chapter, I try and write as much as I can about them. Now, the Falatives, to switch gears, this Russian family back in Moscow, they start to come onto our radar screen in the 1620s. One of the, a fur trader from the Russian northern towns, he's going to Siberia, he's getting wealthy on furs. One of his sons becomes, you know, they, they kind of make their way into the privileged ranks by the 1620s. And then by the 1650s, 
with our generation of Astafi Filatif, this is the third generation in which they're on my radar screen, they're one of the leading families. This man, Astafi Filatif, has two of his sons that are made Gusti simultaneously with him. That's quite rare. These sons, they hobnob with Peter the Great. In fact, one of them I think maybe as in a nod to Peter, <laughs> names his son Peter. I never see in their family tree that name before 1717. And so by the early 18th century, live in a fine estate, a, a stone's throw from the Kremlin. They have coffee, they have a carriage house, they have lots of servants and, and fine silver silver wares. I mean, they are living a lifestyle, as far as I can see, that appears noble in terms of mater- material wealth. And they have, they have access to court in the papers of Tsar Peter. We see Alexei Filatov being invited to one of Peter's parties personally. But then, interestingly, Alexei, it's, it's during the Northern War, and then Alexei gives a 10,000-ruble gift to the Tsar to help in the war effort. So this is kind of one of those also less-seen ways in which relations between the Tsar and elite merchants are maintained. And finally, let's go back to the the bigger picture of this. What conclusions can we take from your study in terms of Russia's historical development when compared to Western nations and societies? And here, here I think I'd like you to focus on something you bring up in your introduction, and that is the history of capitalist development. So where does Russia fit in that early development of a capitalist economy? Overall, my take is that Russia isn't so different from its contemporary states in terms of the difference of capitalism. Uh, let me bracket all of this by saying I, I don't feel like I have um, a good enough understanding about Eastern societies to talk much about that. But from what I do know about the Ottoman societies and, and even in Central Asia, you know, this concept from, from from the Ottoman world to Central Asia to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, you know, drawing on um, Bernard Bailin's studies of New England merchants, it is absolutely standard to put merchants coming from other, out of places in particular in particular quarters in the city. They voluntarily did this. You know, people kind of gravitate to their own in these diasporic nodes. But the state also, as by this middle 17th century, you know, they want to see that happening as well. That is standard fare. I feel like in retrospect, it gets pointed out as one of the ways in which the Russian state is described pejoratively. Foreign merchants go, they have no freedom. They don't have freedom. They don't appreciate you know, they're so suspicious. But this sort of thing happened in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, even more, you might say, in terms of restrictions on people out of towners coming in to trade. And here you're here you're specifically what you're referencing is is Kitagorod in Moscow as the, the quarters of for foreigners, right? Well, actually even the, the Nemetskaya Slobada is um this place the Kitagorod is this big place that people trade and there's some and there's some houses in it and lots of all the trading stalls are there where there's like the silver row and the book row and, and the beaver hat row and, and various fabrics and these trading trading stalls, hundreds and hundreds. There were houses in Kitaigorod as well. And the Filatifs had a, had a big house kind of right next to it on, on the other side. So, so that's where people trade. But then the, there were foreigners start, the, the German quarters is where foreigners start being kind of asked to 
live in the mid-century. And this is a moment where people say, look how oppressive that Russian state is. They kind of, they confiscated property and they made them all live in one place. In other places, that happened already. Previously, foreigners coming to Moscow had relatively more freedom. And my sense, but I need to kind of look more into this and I intend to at some point, is that this moving, this kind of um, putting foreigners together in the middle of the 17th century is part of a reform under Alexei Mihailovich to try and collect more revenue. It turns out that the at the same time, they're realizing, you know, all this real estate in Moscow that monasteries possess, it's called white lands and no one pays taxes on it. And it seems like that foreigners also had that same status. And so this, in some ways, we might understand in terms of eminent domain, that the state wants to do some restructuring and saying, why are these foreigners living outside of, you know, they're in white lands, we want them in black lands, because then we collect taxes on that. And so it's a, I think that it might be legitimate to see that not as a a xenophobic move, but kind of an administrative restructuring aimed at generating more revenue, because the foreigners were kind of slipping out of that. With respect to the history of capitalism, England and the Dutch are tremendous outliers. They are aggressive merchant states and holding every other early modern country to them, they will probably always look more advanced. Even as I've pointed out, maybe in some ways England wasn't so progressive and modern. For example, see Queen Elizabeth trying to eliminate copies of Giles Fletcher's text in late 16th century England. That said, Overall, Russia isn't so different. Russia does all the mercantile things that other states do. It it recognizes the value of trade. It tries to uh, promote trade. It tries to accrue specie to itself. And here's a moment in which sometimes it, if you will, throws its own merchants under the bus, you know, and gives a contract to a foreign merchant because it sees that that foreign merchant is a way to get silver into the country in a way that a Russian elite can't. There are those examples, but I think that there's a prioritization that we can see, and the Russian state isn't so, although I hate this term, backward. It's kind of doing the types of things that other states do at the time. Russia, once it has a Russian revolution, it is on such a different historical trajectory. There's all these ideological demands from, in terms of what a Marxist history is, and in terms of what our old Cold War sentiments generated, that it's that we almost can't write the history of capitalism objectively. And, and I think that in some ways, that's a lot of what we see. Samuel Barron, one of the people that... Um, who I'm tremendously indebted to. And he's one of the people that's doing this work of studying Russian commerce and merchants when no one else cared. But he also, um, writing in the midst of the Cold War, sees a failure of Russian capitalism, a failure in both the state and the merchants. And what, in which ways are these merchants defective? These merchants are defective because they seek state favor instead of seeking risk and opportunity. His merchants are really a kind of ideal type of merchant that only exists, as I put in the book, on the pages of an Ayn Rand novel. Look at the lobbying industry in the United States of America. I mean, these are, if you will, people of commerce seeking state favor. And yet this is one of the biggest kind of critiques of why merchants aren't good capitalists, that they avoid risk. 
you know, and, and yet <laughs> what merchant really says, give, give me more risks, except on the pages of Atlas Shrugged. And we also, I think that we privilege technology and we privilege maritime travel so much. And they said, well, why didn't they go overseas and build ships? And it seems to me in that moment, it makes sense. Of course, in retrospect, we can look back and say, oh, Russia really hurt itself by not necessarily developing its own, you know, its own big bottoms to, to carry stuff. But it had the British and the Dutch on its own shores competing for the portage of Russian goods. I mean, given a world of finite resources, why would you at that point say, you know, you send your ship back empty, let me go ahead and build my own when they've got other things they're trying to do. From Moscow to Nierchinsk is farther than from Moscow to London. And they are overseeing and, and managing these massive networks of travel that involve lots and lots of logistics. But so I think that kind of a failure of the context in which they were existing and maybe a little bit of privileging maritime technological advances has made us see Russian merchants as as not accomplishing all that much, just kind of hunkering down and being risk averse and orthodox. That was Erica Monahan, an associate professor in history at the University of New Mexico, where she specializes in commerce, corruption, and empire in early modern Eurasia. She's the author of The Merchants of Siberia, Trade in Early Modern Russia, published by Cornell University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to everyone who've contributed. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Our story's over